Ladies and gentlemen, the Brit Pack is back. It is show number 46 of the MMA podcast that brings you fighting talk with a distinctly British flavour. My name is Simon Head. I'm a mixed martial arts journalist from the UK, as is my podcast inspiring partner, Chimak Sandu. How are you, mate? I'm very well, Simon. It was a busy weekend in the world of mixed martial arts with two back-to-back UFC events, uh, but it was also a busy weekend in the Sandu household as uh, me and my wife celebrated our four-year wedding anniversary. So... I had a celebratory kind of Thai massage, then we had some steak in the evening with some wine, and uh, and now we're just kind of rolling right into what is going to be yet another super packed, busy week in our world. Nice. Congratulations on the four years. Thank you. Um, yeah, do you know I've been married 11 years? Wow, that's amazing. My wife deserves a medal. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's that's great stuff, mate. That's great stuff, and you are dead right. We've we've just had a busy week. We've got an even more busy week this week. Very quickly, just to let you know, on this week's show, we're going to look back at International Fight Week, pick out the key talking points, give our respective takes on uh, you know the big stories that came out of Las Vegas last week. We will answer your questions in our regular Q and A section. We will look ahead to UFC Fight Night. In Glasgow, Scotland, as the Octagon returns to the the absolutely gorgeous SSE Hydro Arena um, up there in Glasgow for UFC Fight Night 113. And uh, there's a small matter of the Floyd Mayweather-Conor McGregor press tour landing right here in England at Wembley Arena uh, this... What is it? Friday? It's Friday, isn't it? And uh, I understand you're going to be there, Sandu, so we will we will run through that as well. Uh-huh. Uh, before we shut up shop and uh, bury ourselves in a week of juicy MMA goodness. But let's just kick things off where it started, which was Las Vegas, last Friday night, the Ultimate Fighter finale. Uh, we mentioned on last week's show that if you were in town and uh, you had uh, you had a few dollars spare to get yourself into the building, uh, you would do yourself well to watch this card because there were some sneaky good fights on that card. And uh, even if the rest of the card didn't really live up to the billing, the main event just paid for your ticket in, well, many, many times over. Justin Gaethje, former World Series champion, comes in uh, and has a fight for a fight for forever contender, as I, as I, I wrote down the other day, uh, against Michael Johnson. Only went two rounds, but it was an absolute barn burner. Sandu, have you seen a better fight? In the, let's say in the last two or three years, the Gaethje versus Johnson, that one's right up there for me. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly for this year, that's the, that, it'll be hard to top that for fight of the year. If we see a better fight this year, then we're in for a treat. Uh, yeah, I mean, last couple of years, you can point to, you know, Carlos Condit, Robbie Lawler, Rory McDonald, Rory Mc, um, Robbie Lawler. You can point to Cub Swanson, Duho Choi, um, you know, We've got a long history of MMA now. Uh, you can always, if you if we spent some time really thinking about it, I'm sure we can pick out some some awesome fights. But I think I think perhaps in the context of say within two rounds, uh, in the context of somebody making their UFC debut, uh, in the context of an opponent who's never been finished by knockout or TKO before, that's when you start to really think about what an amazing feat this actually is and how. Awesome of a fight it was, a great performance by Gaethje, a great win by Gaethje. And yeah, like I said, without a doubt, most probably going to be the fight of the year 2017. Yeah, it was it was awesome. And 
I've put this right alongside Cub Swanson versus Duho Choi. It was one of those fights where you end up, even if you're sitting at home lounging around on the sofa, which I guess most people in the UK who watch MMA uh, in the middle of the night are, uh, are likely to be doing, just sort of chilling out, maybe having a cold beer, feet up on the table. I, I dare say a lot of people would have been standing up to watch that fight. I know I was. Um, it was it was a fantastic contest. The big question now, Sandu, uh, is what happens with Justin Gaethje next? He's in the best weight class for great fights. There are so many options available. Assuming everybody's available when Gaethje's next fit, who would you like to see him in there with? Forget the rankings for a second. If you just want you you want Gaethje in another barn burner, imagine you know a, a UFC talent relations team say. Sandu, we want Gaethje to top that performance. We want him in an even better fight than the Johnson fight. Who's the best dance partner for the next the next fight, do you think? Wow. Wow. I mean, honestly, Simon, take your pick. You've got Khabib Namagamadov, undefeated. Imagine building up a fight between Khabib and Justin Gaethje. Somebody, though, has to go right there and then, right? Tony Ferguson, as tough as nails. That would be an amazing fight. And then, of course, Conor McGregor, you know, the ultimate draw in our sport. So if you're going to just take, you know, your dream scenario, you've got to put him in there with a top four or five. Kevin Lee, uh, you know, coming off, a, a, you know, an impressive run as of late as well. Um, I, I say anyone in that top four or five um, in the current lightweight rankings and just take my money. Take my money all day long. Yeah. Yeah. The Khabib one for me is actually probably lower on the list. From a, from a promotional point of view, yeah, absolutely. The, you know, the two unbeaten, the two unbeaten guys. But stylistically, I don't know if it will deliver as exciting a fight as say Gaethje versus Edson Barboza, which is just violence on a plate, isn't it? You know, that, I think I think that would be an outstanding next next fight for him um, because Barboza's just outside that top top two or three. If you can get past him, you're there. And I think that's the that's a natural next one for him. I know. I think that I think they might be looking at Kevin Lee uh, against Barboza um, for for later this year. But from a, from a stylistic point, basically Gaethje versus anybody. Just just make sure you're watching his next fight. Unbelievable performance. Uh, took him three goes to get the backflip off the cage sorted, um, but he managed to get it done. And uh, you know, I don't know how how many more times he's going to be allowed to do that. You can see the commissioner's getting a little twitchy. And apparently they had a word with him afterwards. But that's his trademark. Backflips off the cage and brilliant fights. Um, we've seen him in a few for World Series. Now he's going to bring him to the UFC. Else, elsewhere on that card, uh, Jesse Taylor. It was Tough Redemption, Sandu. I know you didn't watch all of the season, but it was titled Tough Redemption. There was no better man to to win that season than Jesse Taylor. The man who... Looked like he was the man to win the Ultimate Fighter way back when he first competed, only to throw it all away by kicking in a limousine window and trashing a hotel. Um, now he's he's gone away, and I actually counted out. I tweeted on the night it was tough twenty five. Jesse Taylor, since he got cut from the UFC, because he did fight once in the UFC, um, and he got cut, he fought for twenty five different promotions since leaving the UFC. Then he comes back, fights in tough, wins the thing. I would assume they'll give him a couple of fights. Like The contract isn't part of the prize now. He gets a quarter of a million dollars. Not bad work if you can get it. Um, 
And uh, spare a thought too for Diego Lima. He's now a two-time tough final loser, um, which I think must be some sort of record as well. So, you know, very unlucky. But um, Taylor's Taylor's been around a bit, and I think he deserves his shot, Sandy. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I don't know watch this, the show like a, like you know, we've discussed over the last kind of I suppose couple of months. But I suppose in regards to what it means to redeem yourself and redeem your career, that narrative, that story, got a nice ending for this show and this series in Jesse, um, you know, becoming the ultimate fighter. I, I think the best thing about it is the fact that he's got a nice pay packet out of it, 290 grand. And, um, you know, he said straight away that, you know, he's going to put it towards his uh, kid's college fund. I'm going to put it to good use, which, you know, only comes, you know, with maturity and becoming a, a, a you know, a responsible adult. So to, so to speak, you know, he wasn't exactly displaying the, the skills and qualities of a responsible adult in his first run in the UFC um, during the, that, that initial Ultimate Fighter show. But, um, you know, good for him. Good for him. How, you know, what this means for the future, you know, time will tell. Um, but at least he's got a, a nice little platform uh, to, to, to bounce off of now and try and just rake up as much cash as he possibly can in this, uh, in this new UFC run of his. Yeah, he's been, as I say, he's, he's, he's been all over the place trying to earn his spot back in. And um, I don't know, I, you know, I doubt he's going to end up challenging for championships or anything in the UFC. I think for him, winning tough was his UFC title. I think mm. uh, that's his story. Everything now is a bonus for him. Hopefully they'll give him, they'll give him uh, you know, a couple of decent fights so he can showcase what he's got and just see, see how much of a run he can go on. Um, but I thought it was a nice, you know, you know me, mate, I'm a sucker for a romantic sporting storyline and this was definitely one. So kudos to JT Money, Jesse Taylor. And he really is JT Money after the weekend. As you say, 290K, not bad work. Um, two people who could potentially earn a few, a few bucks in the years to come went head to head. Drakkar Close versus Mark Diakese. Uh We were pumped for this one beforehand. Obviously, we know a lot about Mark Diakese. We've watched him. Didn't know as much about Drakkar Close. We knew he was tough. But I'll be honest, I thought Diakese was going to handle him. Drakkar Close fought superbly. And uh, the leg kicks really did make their, make their mark early on. And that, for me, was what really turned the fight in his favour against Diakese. The fight went the distance. Drakkar Close got the deserved victory. And then afterwards, he just he went off on Diakese again and... Normally, when fights finish, and you know, if there's any bad blood beforehand, it normally gets squashed at the end of a fight. But he didn't, he didn't want to do any of that. He later apologised in the back because he called all British fighters bums. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was. It, I thought it was a, a fun fight to watch, but it was kind of a shame. And I have a feeling we're going to see these two fight again one day. Uh, that was Diakazi's first ever defeat as a professional. Uh, what did you make of his performance, and uh, how how quickly would you like to see him back in there? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, Simon. I mean, I think one of the things we spoke about on last week's show was the fact that it's been amazing to see Dia Casey get so many fights in. You know, still within the first year of his UFC run, hasn't tasted defeat before. Uh, and I suppose sometimes you know, you strike while the iron is hot, as they say, right? Now looking back, you know, hindsight being what it is. Maybe it might not have been a good idea to kind of you know rush uh, so many fights back to back like that. 
maybe in hindsight, you know, it would, have, it would have been better for him to kind of continue to develop his game. You know, he's been, you know, out there um, at American top team, you know, grafting away, uh, adding to his skill set. He's still only in his early 20s, only 24 years old. But that's, that's hindsight, you know. Coming into the, to the contest itself, we were really high on uh, Diakese uh, and rightly show because, you know, he's been phenomenal, not just before his UFC run, but particularly in his UFC run. Now that he suffered his defeat, uh, it's a bit of a weird one because I know fighters want to get in there straight away uh, just to kind of get back in the win column, uh, get that confidence going again. Um, you know, if he is going to fight sooner rather than later, it might make sense for him to jump back on a European card. Um, we've got Rotterdam uh, around the corner and Gdansk in Poland as well. Um, but this isn't the end. Let's not, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I actually think... Um, it's, it's, it's good for fighters in, in a way. I mean, every cloud is a silver lining. But um, you know, sometimes carrying that undefeated uh, streak and carrying that O can be a big monkey on your back. And now DK doesn't have to worry about it. He's tasted defeat. He knows what it's like physically and mentally to, to deal with it. He'll still be dealing with it right now. Um, his initial responses on social media have been very, very positive. And, um, you know, that's what makes a, a great fighter in the long term. You know, so I'm sure he'll kind of re reassess everything, look back at the fight, uh, analyze it, see what went wrong, um, see where he wasn't able to implement his own game plan and just improve from it. Um, so I'm, I'm actually now looking more forward to his next fight because I want to see how he rebounds from this. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think I think, there's, you know, you speak a lot of sense there. I think this is mixed martial arts. Undefeated records aren't forever. You know, what I mean, very, very rarely. Do you get a case where a fighter runs all the way to the very top of the sport and stays undefeated on the way? Um, uh, Dear Casey's still very young in the sport, and uh, I thought that the fight really did turn very early when uh, Drakkar Closer nailed Dear Casey with a perfectly placed low kick that uh, Mark wasn't able to check, and uh, that really completely altered his game plan. Dear Casey ended up having to fight Southpaw, and I think that took a lot of his power striking away. Um, that 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 fast fastball right hand he's got was you know that that became his lead hand at that point. So um, I think it took a lot of Diakazi's best tools away from him. It made him relying more on his kicks than perhaps he would have wanted to, which again made him a little more predictable for close. So um, I think we're going to see Diakazi come roaring back, and I completely agree with you. I think he's still a prospect. Uh, what we now know is we now know a little bit more about Drakkar Close. As, as as Brits, we haven't seen much of him. And I know that some of our uh, journalist colleagues from the States and Canada, they were quite high on Drakkar Close going into this fight. So it means we've got two good young prospects on the way up. They've met early in their careers. And as I say, I wouldn't be at all surprised if maybe two or three years down the line, if they're both still doing well, we might see them uh, go head-to-head -head again. But possibly with a with a ranking number next to their name. Who knows? We'll see how it goes in the future for both guys. Uh, last thing to mention for the Tuffinari, uh, the Tuffinari, Jared Cannonier, uh kind of laboured really to a late TKO stoppage over very late replacement Nick Rorick, who I think he was due to fight this coming Tuesday at the Dana White Contender Series, which kicks off on Fight Pass. I'm looking forward to that. I'll mention that in a second as well. Um, he was due to fight on that, but then got drafted in uh, as a late replacement to fight Jared Cannonier, made a good good fist of it and did, did pretty well, I thought. Uh, Cannonier won the fight, which was all fine. You know, that's all, you know, 
the fight was what it was, but the thing that came afterwards was the thing that really interested me. We always talk about fighters maximizing their time on the mic, and uh, Cannoneer knew exactly who he wanted to call out, and uh, he did it in a in a respectful way, but he did it in a very a very clear way. He wants to fight Gokan Saki, which that's a brave call out. Um, but it's also one that makes a whole lot of sense as well because Cannonier, it's hard to see where he fits in with the guys above him in that 205 pound division. And because of the, the way the division is set, there aren't that many really huge names he can build his name off below him. So calling out Gokan Saki makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, I know the, the, the Rotterdam card isn't that far away. It might be too short a turnaround time. But that wouldn't be a terrible matchup to make, I don't think. What do you reckon? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, Simon. I completely agree. Um, Gokan Saki is someone that is going to get a lot of media attention um, and uh, a relatively decent bit of push from the UFC in just making his debut You know, whenever that happens. And so for, for Cannonier to call him out, it's perfect because you're going to have uh, an opponent that you're most likely going to slot onto a main card for, number one. And, and hell, if it's in Europe, it may even be a, a you know upper echelon main card. It could be that the third you know fight from the top, or maybe even a co-main event, because there's so many people that are willing to go and watch a Gokan Saki fight. They're willing to buy tickets, and he is going to be uh, a bit of a draw in in you know our part of the world here in Europe. So you know to get to get that on your resume, if you can beat him, would be great. And you know Gokan Saki is a kind of fighter uh, that knows how to promote a fight, and I'm sure they'll kind of get into it. And yeah, I like it. It, it, it makes a lot of sense. It really does. It really does. Now, while we've been talking, uh, a press release has just dropped into my inbox um, from Bellator MMA. Um, and uh, Bellator have made a high-profile new signing. Mm-hmm. You know this because I think you pretty much broke the news. You were the first person to actually put it out there that this looked like it was going to happen. Um, and it has since been 100% confirmed. It has then been rubber-stamped. And here we are, Bellator MMA signs top-ranked middleweight Gegard Mousasi to an exclusive multi-fight contract. Um, Very, very interesting signing. When you think that Bellator have recently signed Rory MacDonald uh, and Ryan Bader, you could argue that this Gegard Mousasi signing is right up there with the best of the signings they've made. It's probably between him and Rory Mack, I would say. Um, And this is... He's kind of a he's kind of a double threat because he can compete at middleweight, or he could jump straight into that light heavyweight division, which they're building up quite nicely, and become a real threat at two hundred and five pounds. Let's not forget he used to be the Strike Force two hundred and five pound champion, and of course he's very well known to Scott Coker having fought for that promotion back in the day. So you 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 uh, broke this developing story early on Twitter today, Sandu. Um, what do you make of the signing? Uh, what do you make of the uh, the situation with Musasi? Um, and why do you think that he's opted to go this route rather than re-upping his deal with the UFC? Well, first of all, we spoke a little bit about this before we started the, the podcast today, Simon. You and me both, we're not breaking news type reporters. That's just not what we do. That's just not our style. Me, certainly not. I don't cover the sport full time. Uh, and put in as many hours as a full-time journalist would to establish relationships and have the right connections to do something like this on a, on a regular basis. But today, this morning, 
was one of those occasions where something fell into my lap and, um, you know, I ran with it and it's become, uh, I suppose, the biggest news story of today, at least. And I think, first of all, for Bellator, massive signing. I think it's right up there with the Rory McDonald's and the Chael Sonnens, especially when you when you take into consideration the win streak that Masasi is on. Um, and the probably a little bit more than just the win streak. I'd say the way Masasi's personality has just shone through in the last 18 months to two years. He's really come on leaps and bounds. And I feel like for a guy, you know, at his age where he's still, what, in his what, mid-30s or something like that, you know, he's just finally become, I think, the all-round perfect fighter that is a promoter's dream. He's all action. He finishes fights. He wins fights. Um, for Bellator, he's a European-based fighter. Europe is a massive market where they're making ridiculously great strides in, in, in many, many, many markets, especially the UK and Ireland, uh, Italy and places like that. Um, and, you know, masasi has got a, a connection with Scott Coker, of course, like you mentioned. He was, uh, you know, he fought for Scott under the, the, the strike force era. And he's legitimately a top five middleweight in the world. You take every, in my opinion, you take every middleweight on planet Earth that fights as a mixed martial artist, Gergud Masasi is in the top five. Yeah. So it adds, it adds legitimacy, you know, to the, UF, to the Bellator middleweight um, ranks. It continues that momentum that Bellator just keep, keep on churning out. This last year to 18 months, I mean, I know that Scott Coke has been in charge and at the helm for about, I think, three or four years now. But it's really been in the last year to 18 months where, you know, they're building an amazing roster, Simon. They're breaking into new international markets. Um, you're starting to see, you know, fighters talk to media and express how happy they are uh, in the Bellator family, how much they're getting paid, uh, some of the deals that they're able to strike and revenue they're able to bring in through, through sponsorship, you know. It's a win-win. It's a win-win. And I, I personally, just from the outside looking in, I don't know this, you know, uh, f for certain. I think um, money was a, a major factor. Um, Masasi has kind of mentioned that in a, in a few interviews himself. He's at that age where this was probably going to be one of his final major contracts. And where he spends the next kind of like next couple of years fighting will probably be the peak of his earning power. And, uh, and I think for him, that probably means a little bit more um, than a UFC middleweight championship, in my opinion. So if that's the reason that he's done it, good for him, good for Bellator, and good for the sport and good for the industry that things like this now are starting to become more commonplace because it makes for a very, very interesting time in MMA. It's, it certainly does, and it opens up the possibility of Bellator maybe investigating a, a potential show in the Netherlands as well. So... Um, and uh, we know that they've got a really strong kickboxing pedigree uh, in, in in Holland, and uh, maybe a few a few more shrewd signings uh, could really build build up a, a strong a strong uh, fan base over there. I find it really interesting because you look at the the, uh, the situation with the Bellator middleweight division; it's pretty thin. Um, but by having a figurehead, a real name potentially standing at the top of that division, that then helps you recruit more. Because who wants to go and fight in a division full of people you've never heard of? Well, if Gay Guard's sitting at the top holding the belt, then it makes it a lot easier to recruit other world-class middleweights to that division. That's point number one. 
Point number two is it also opens up other other options at 205. Um, there are already uh, a, a, a growing band of, of top-level uh, 205ers beginning to, uh, beginning to accumulate in, un, under the Bellator MMA banner. And Musashi, while he said in, in a press release here, I'm coming after the Bellator middleweight championship, the odd busman's holiday at 205 would, would make a lot of sense to me. So... I think it gives them options. Just to just to give you the quotes from the press release very quickly, uh, Bellator President Scott Coker said, I'm thrilled to welcome Gegard to the growing Bellator family. He's one of the most well-rounded fighters in all of MMA and can compete in multiple divisions. So that really opens up some exciting matchmaking opportunities for us and for the fans. We're looking forward to having him compete on Spike very soon. And Musashi's quoted here as saying, I'm looking forward to fighting in Bellator. I have a long-standing relationship with Scott Coker that goes back many years. Be ready. I'm coming after the Bellator middleweight championship. Don't forget, this is a guy with 50 pro fights on his record. Outstanding record, 46, Insane. 42, 6, and 2. Uh, and he's beaten a who's who. You know, he's got an incredible record. This, I'm, you know, the more I think about this, the more I think this is as good, if not better, than the Rory McDonald signing. Uh, I think they're, they're kind of 1A, 1 and 1A or 1A and 1B. I think they're right up there. Had to break away from the script just to give you that. Uh, no, good shout. Because, good because that's, that is probably the biggest story of the show. So yeah. uh, there we go. Gegard Musassi confirmed he is no longer a UFC fighter. He's now part of Bellator MMA and he's after that 185 pound Bellator strap. Uh, sure, there'll be a lot more to come on that. Back over on Planet UFC, we look back at UFC 213, which took place on Saturday night at the T-Mobile Arena. And uh, it was a card that was given some sort of late drama. There was a sort of a mini crisis, really, where the main event fell through with literally hours to spare as Amanda Nunes declared herself unfit to fight. Um, by from, from, from what we're told, she was medically cleared to do so. She, you know, she was medically cleared to fight She's since uh, put out a statement saying that she had chronic sinusitis. Anyone who's had sinusitis, uh, who you've seen on Twitter, they'll tell you it's not it's not a fun thing to have. And if, in a sport where you're getting punched in the face, I can't imagine it's too comfortable either. So um, obviously the UFC were, were pretty disappointed. Dana White made it very clear that he was disappointed, and you can kind of un- you know to a degree you can understand that because of when it happened. Um, but also, it's also slightly unrealistic to expect a champion to jump in there if they're not if they're not really good to go. So, um, my my opinion, I'll, I'll give you mine while I'm rambling. Sadhu, I I don't think you should be expected to fight if you're not if you're not fit to fight. Okay, the doctors have medically cleared you, but do you know what I mean? And and, and all this talk, I've seen all these keyboard warriors on Twitter saying. She's scared. She's she's not scared. She beat Valentina Shevchenko already. She's absolutely smashed everybody since then. She's a world champion. She's got no reason to be scared of anything. Um, so I don't buy that defense at all. I don't. You know. I I just think she just wasn't a hundred percent fit. She wasn't good to go. So she's pulled herself out. There's lots of nuances and arguments over whether she should have the power to do that. And still, still have the belt. I think Kevin Ioli asked the question in the press conference. I think it's pretty much as it should be. She she wasn't good to go. She's withdrawn herself from the fight, 
Uh, they're going to try and rebook it. I think they're going to try and do it for UFC 215 in Edmonton in September. So best thing for that, really, just get it booked. Get it rebooked quick as possible. And let's just get the fight made and, and, and move on. Do you think there's much drama with this? Or is it just a bit of a storm in a teacup, do you think? Oh, it's, it's really unfortunate to have this all played out, Simon. And I think one of the major things to take away from it is it's, if you're a fighter and this happens to you, or if you're part of the team, uh, the camp, management, agent, coach, whatever, try and get ahead of the story if you can. Because whoever can get information out first usually controls that narrative. And, and it, can, it, can either be a, it can either be a positive or a negative detriment to you down the line. So with that being said, the first, per, the first kind of pers- you know, person or um, outfit to release any information was Dana White and the UFC uh, through MMA Junkie. Uh, and then you start to kind of hear reports where she had passed her medical and, uh, you know, the doctors had approved her medically fit to fight, yet she pulled out, you know, and then you've got Dana White giving quotes where, you know, he's saying it's 90% mental and 10% physical and things of that nature. And the thing people have to understand is the UFC machine is, is massive it's, it's, and it's really hot on a pay-per-view weekend, you know, and even someone like Dana White, who's got millions of Twitter followers, when something like that comes out and you, you the fighter, still haven't, you know, provided some information, it can be literally a matter of hours and you've got the whole world against you. You know, it was really unfortunate to see some of the uh, the responses online and social media. It's really the ugly part of social media that, that I personally hate. Just seeing, you know, from fans, you know, MMA fans, uh, mainstream fans, casual fans, what have you, weighing in, just saying, oh, she was scared and she didn't want to fight, she pulled out, blah, 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 and all the rest of it. Listen, you know, Considering what she had to deal with, <laughs> chronic cyanitis, I, I've never experienced it, so I can't tell you what it feels like. But yeah, like you said, Simon, I followed a lot of uh, other people sharing their experience with it online, and it seems pretty horrific if you ask me, let alone having to deal with that when you're a pro MMA fighter uh, trying to cut weight, you've done all your media obligations, you've done everything, you haven't skipped anything, and uh, you put on a brave face, haven't given the slightest bit of um, evidence in anything, an interview, uh, the appearance at the weigh-in or anything like that, that there's anything wrong with you whatsoever. So she hit it pretty well. And my inkling is she was trying to battle through it and fight through it as best as she could. And I don't blame her, Simon, because although she beat Ronda Rousey and although you know she beat Misha Tate, I think we would all comfortably agree Valentina Shevchenko was going to be the toughest test of her career to date. Many had picked her to win. I personally had picked Shevchenko to win Same myself. Here. Same here. Right? Um, and, and I think Amanda knew this was going to be the toughest fight of her life. And for her not to be at 100%, she would be doing herself a disservice and doing herself uh, a massive injustice. She needs to go into a fight and leave on the other end, even if she loses, knowing that she gave everything and she can't have any regrets. And for her to make the decision, which would have hurt her, you know, emotionally, in the public eyes, and also financially, because she didn't get a penny. And she's got coaches and agents to, uh, to pay for and other expenses, what have you. It hurt her. So, but the most important thing is now when this fight gets rebooked, and it looks like it will be in Edmonton uh, for the pay-per-view in, in, in September, hopefully everything goes well for her during camp and, and that week, and she is able to fight Shevchenko, and, uh, and we'll get, finally get to see this fight. But uh, it's just really unfortunate in terms of how the timeline played out of information coming out regarding this. 
it's really it, it's it's really interesting this because we've seen two high profile instances of uh a female UFC champion who the 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 way that they've dealt with the media or haven't dealt with the media has had an enormous effect on how the fan base and the public view them. You look at Jermaine Durandamy, and now you look at Amanda Nunes. Um, Jermaine Durandamy, we've both met uh, Jermaine during our uh, coverage of European events. Absolutely lovely person to talk to, lovely to deal with, made a major error in the way she's handled things over the last few weeks, particularly in terms of her communication of things. Um, and uh, it's it's hurt her career. Amanda Nunes, I had the pleasure of meeting her in New York. Um, there was a media luncheon in New York. Uh, I wasn't sat on her table. Um, I was sat on a, on, on a different table. But she she's absolutely lovely to deal with as well. Um, and... You know these aren't these aren't people who are looking to pull the wool over people's eyes or pull a fast one and you know sort of try and sneak their way around getting in the cage and fighting. These are elite level athletes who make their money by getting in the cage and fighting. And uh, I think it goes back to your point about controlling the narrative. I think when a fight falls through, the the obvious first place to hear about it is the UFC. But her team needed to be hot on the heels of that announcement with a, a social media statement, Instagram post, Twitter comment, whatever it might be, or a press release out to all of the major outlets saying she's got sinusitis, blah de blah, blah this is why we're not fighting. We'd like to apologise to the UFC. We want to apologise to Valentina. Uh, we will endeavour to get this fight back on as soon as we possibly can. Um, that, at least, it's damage limitation. That didn't happen. It took... It took many hours before we heard anything. Um, and by then, it had already, you know, Dana had done a whole load of interviews. And in doing the interviews and talking about the subject over and over again, you could see him becoming more frustrated with the situation as well. That in that just sort of led to the whole thing escalating. And um, really, something that could have been nipped in the bud very, very quickly uh, wasn't. And... Um, I think Amanda was let down a little bit, if I'm honest. I think I think that that information needed to come out as quickly as the UFC statement did. Uh, it really needed to be straight after. Yep. Um, so if UFC statement comes out at two at two o one, you want to be pinging. You you know you want to be hitting send on your on your social media post or your or your press release. So um, so yeah, hopefully the well, I think I think the best thing from here get them in a fight. Uh, hopefully two fifteen, as has been suggested. And then we can move on. That was the drama at the start of the uh, the event. Thankfully, we had another world title fight on the card. It was an interim title fight for the middleweight belt. Robert Whittaker, Yoel Romero. Everyone was expecting it to be a cracker. It was a cracker. It was a great fight. Romero won the first two rounds uh, on my card. I think he won the first two rounds on all three judges' cards as well. He also badly injured Robert Whittaker's left knee in that first round to the point that Whitaker was basically fighting on one leg for the rest of the fight. But somehow, uh, Bobby Knuckles managed to grit his teeth, and his corner were brilliant. You know, they just kept it nice and calm. You sort of, They were flip-flopping between the corners on the coverage. And especially at the end of the fight, Romero's corner were going sort of frantic at him, saying, you've got to win this round, you've got to win this round. Whitaker's corner, nice and calm, 
Make sure you win this one. Win this one, you're home. It's all good. But I thought that Whitaker's corner were outstanding. They managed to get him not thinking about the injury and just knowing what job he had to do in the next five minutes. Um, and uh, I thought Whitaker fought superbly because he had changed his game plan. Won rounds three, four, and five. Finished with a pretty dominant fourth, uh, sorry, fifth round. Uh, and he is now the interim UFC middleweight champ. How impressed were you with uh, the Reaper, Robert Whitaker? Really, really impressed, Simon. I mean, I don't have the, the verbiage or the vocabulary to describe how amazing it was to see him come back um, from those first couple of rounds. First of all, let me just say I've thoroughly enjoyed that main event. Uh, it had me at the edge of my seat the entire time. It was made my my palms sweaty. I just, you just didn't know what was going to happen next because both guys, you know, you got you got Yoel who's so kind of unpredictable in, in his movement and the way he goes about his business in the cage, and then you had Whitaker who's obviously visibly so, uh, you know, impaired with a leg injury. So you were trying to figure out how he was going to kind of muster up the guts and the the, the intestinal fortitude to actually continue and, and figure out a game plan to come back because he was down you know, two rounds. And I think universally, everyone had it scored the same way. You had Yara Romero 10-9 uh, the first two rounds, and then you had Robert Whitaker 10-9 rounds 3, 4, and 5. I don't think I saw anybody else with a, any, or anyone else's scorecard that I actually respect any different to that. And it was amazing, Simon. It really was. I mean, he's gone through a murderer's row pretty much, except for the champ Michael Bisping right at the top there. And um, Robert Whitaker in his mid-20s, what a great story. It uh, went a little bit pear-shaped for him at, at welterweight. He goes up to middleweight, much, much healthier for him at that weight class. And he's putting on the best performances of his career. Australia now has, or be an interim, a UFC champion. That's massive. Um, and now it's going to hopefully help the sport explode even further. I mean, it's, it's pretty much been doing fairly well anyway with so many UFC events taking place there especially you know marquee events but now this should you know take it leaps and bounds hopefully the UFC PR machine is going to help Whitaker get a lot of you know interviews with some mainstream outlets there late night shows hopefully it'll help him get more sponsorship deals in Australia to help him financially and what have you and um, and now it sets up um, the, the title unification bout with Michael Bisping and I think again universally everyone's happy with that you know, almost it's almost like normal service is about to or has resumed uh, in the UFC middleweight division. Um, the UFC and Dana White has said that the the GSP uh, Bisping fight is now pretty much done and dusted as things of the past. You had Michael Bisping square off with Whitaker in the cage afterwards, and you know Bisping was on you know top form all night long uh, with some of his antics, and uh, and, and and you know you know. And I'm sure we're going to get to this in a, in a little while with some of the questions. But, uh, but I think what you do, Simon, to continue to keep Bisping happy, because obviously that George St. Pierre fight was and still potentially could be the biggest payday of his career. However, to put a positive spin on it, if you put Bisping and Whitaker's unification bout on the same card as a main or co-main event to a GSP returning to the welterweight division, fighting the winner of a Tyron Woodley, Damian Meyer, then everybody's happy, right? So, uh, but without having to, to focus too much of the uh, attention away from Whitaker, 
or Bobby Knuckles, as pretty much he's uh, well known now in our in our little MMA bubble. Really unbelievable performance. One of the performances of the year so far. Uh, and it'll probably be a top five performance when you look back at it uh, at the end of the year. And uh, just, yeah, fantastic performance. And congratulations to Bobby Knuckles. Absolutely. And looking, looking at the future uh, events calendar for the UFC, we currently have a UFC Fight Night event scheduled for Sydney, Australia on the 18th of November. Now, I can see a couple of potential things happening in November. If Bisbing and Whitaker can both get themselves fit, then there's you know, a good amount of lead time for them both to rehab any little injuries they've got. I guess it depends on how serious Whitaker's injury is. Um, 18th of November, that event could be bumped up to pay-per-view status. You could send GSP down there. You could put Ioanni and Jacek down there. She did very well. Um, down there in Australia previously, and the fans really took to her. So you could do something down there and really sort of uh, give that a bit of a beef up, upgrade it from fight night to a pay-per-view status, stack the card, get all of the Australian fighting talent on your roster, your Tyson Pedros and uh, Damian Brown and people like that. Get them all on the card um, and uh, see if you can really make that something quite big. The other thing is there is currently no event scheduled. There's currently no event scheduled for Saturday the 11th of November, and I can't help but think that that may be occupied by uh, a UFC event at Madison Square Garden eventually. It's kind of the same time of year that we had it last year. Um, so if if the stars align, you might just see an MSG event because there's no MSG event announced yet this year. We know they want to go back. We know that November is the most likely time for them to go back. November the 11th, given that they've got events every weekend after that in November, um, I think November the 11th could end up being an MSG event. And it fits exactly into what you said. We could have Conor McGregor uh, potentially returning to the UFC on that show. We could also have Michael Bisbing versus Robert Whittaker on that show. Who knows? I, I I think there are options there. And I'm sure there's lots of lots of things being discussed, uh, and the wheels of that big UFC machine that you mentioned earlier are going to be are going to be turning as they look to put their chess pieces in place for the back end of this year. I think we're going to see some big fights, and Bisbing versus Whitaker, I think, will be a great one. So um, look forward to seeing that. Got to say, I know we're the Brit Pack. We are, you know, we're pleased that we have a world champion in Michael Bisbing ripping up another nation's flag at Cage Side. Not cool, Michael Bisbing. Not cool. Um, that probably, like, it's all banter to him. He doesn't give a stuff, does he? But other people, they take that kind of thing quite seriously. Yoel Romero um, has responded on social media. Um, I think we both tweeted about it today. Um, he uh, he took a, a photo of Michael Bisbing holding the uh, the British flag, and uh, while smoking a Havana, set the thing on fire and burnt it. Now. Burning a photo of a guy with a flag is bad, but I think we need to stand up for our buddy, Pear Halistam. Uh, MMA junkie Pear, as he is on Twitter. That was Pear's picture. What are you burning his pictures for? You can't be doing that. Anyway, Pear tweeted UL Romero and got a, got a little like. So it sounds like UL sort of taking it in, uh, in good, in good, uh, good humour. And I thought, the way he, I thought the way he reacted to his loss, actually. Uh, was top class, Yoel Romero. Came across really well. Um, very philosophical. Seemed quite happy, although I'm sure he was absolutely crestfallen. 
to missed out on a shot at the guy he really wanted to get his hands on. Um, but uh, yeah, great stuff from Joel Romero. What did you make of the the whole uh, flag business? Both that for, first first from Bisbing and then from Romero. Is this this all just a bit of silliness that we could have done without? I'll be honest with you, Simon. I'm okay with most things when it comes to uh, promotion in the fight game. Um, unless you're kind of, you know, really kind of going after, say, someone's kind of like sexual orientation or, you know, you're going, it's, a, it's, a, it's a super racially toned kind of attack or something like that. Uh, that doesn't sit well with me and it wouldn't wash well with most people. But I think what we've got here is something that I love because it's straight out of the pro wrestling playbook. Um, and you know what? The, the funny thing is, is what we've seen, I think, just starting from the Gary Cook era, when Gary Cook was kind of brought in by the UFC, the kind of um, the mandate at the time was to try and make the UFC uh, as international as possible. They really try and highlight um, the, the, the nationalities of fighters. And you see that um, with the, the, the fight kit colors. You see that with um you know uh, the promotional material that'll come up uh, you'll see that on social media um and i think the fact that both yoel and bisping have gone back and forth now uh attacking each other's flags it's all fun and games it's all fun and games and i think what you've got now it's funny because although yoel romero lost on on saturday night i really want to see romero bisping big time I really want to see that fight. And I, and I hope at some point before Bisping and Romero both call it a day, uh, considering their age, their ages, uh, I hope they, I hope they um, get it on. Because this has been bubbling now for, for, uh, for a good year. It's been bubbling for a while. And, and every time they interact in, in whatever shape, way, or form it is, it just escalates. But it escalates within the realms that I'm comfortable with. And I'm happy. I'm, happy, I, I, you know, I'm comfortable saying that. And I'm just, I'm just, yeah, it, it, it ticks my boxes, put it that way, Simon. I, I'm comfortable with it. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I think people's sort of boundaries and all the rest of it, I think if you just did it within the confines of the UK, I think people would be very much of your opinion. I think if you look at it internationally, imagine if it was someone burning the American flag, all hell would have broken loose. Or, you know, someone would have been uh, tearing up an American flag. That would have gone down like the proverbial poo sandwich, right? It would not have been good, right? So I think because of the way that different nations have, a, you know, the respect they have for their flag, um, I think it's it, it's kind of teetering on the line of whether it's acceptable or not. Internationally, we might be okay with it over here, but it's not our nation that we're, we're, we're sort of disrespecting when we're tearing flags up. So, you know what I mean? So it's kind of, it's, I, I, I thought it was, I mean, when I saw Yol Romero burning a, uh, a photo of Bisbing and, uh, and, and, and the union flag, I wasn't outraged in any way, in any way. The thing I found the, uh, you know, the main emotion I took from it was that's Pear's picture. That's hilarious. Um, but you know, I, I, I viewed it very much as sort of as, as banter, but and I do know that different nations have a lot more reverence for their flag than perhaps we do over here. So, uh, I think it's a bit of a tricky one. Uh, and Biz being some, sometimes he does tread that line sometimes, but, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if someone just said, take it easy, Mike, just take it easy. Um, but that was a great fight. And Biz being Romero, if you want Biz being Romero to happen, you've got to be cheering on Bisbing to beat Robert Whitaker. 
because I think if Bisbing loses his belt, I think he hangs his gloves up. Um, so we'll see what happens. And even then, I don't know. I don't know if if that Romero fight would ever happen. I have a feeling it, you know, that that ship may have uh, may have sailed with uh, Romero's defeat to Whitaker at the weekend. But we will see. We will see. Also on that two one three uh, card, we were hoping to come away knowing who the next top contender for the UFC heavyweight title might be. Uh, but we don't. Alistair Overeem took on uh, current number one ranked heavyweight Fabricio Verdum, former UFC champion uh, Verdum against former Strike Force uh, and K1 Grand Prix champion Alistair Overeem. And it wasn't vintage stuff, was it? It was it was pretty pretty low key. Um, Overeem, who used to just be a marauding kickboxer who had good submissions and he just used to steamroll people. Now he's very safety first, fights off the back foot, and uh, it was it was a pretty nondescript fight. Really, it wasn't it wasn't that interesting and exciting to watch. Overeem won the first two rounds. Just Vadum clearly won the third round. Uh, one judge scored it a draw. The other two scored it for Overeem. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think the plan was for him to win that fight and call for a title shot. Dana White said, "You're not getting a title shot off a performance like that." Given that that's been said, Sandu, who do you want to see Overeem fight next? Well, um, that's an interesting question and a good question. Um, I guess you've got to wait and see what the outcome is of um, of the Francis Ngannou fight, right? With JDS. With JDS, yeah. You've got Francis Ngannou fighting JDS now. Is Kane Book signed? I can't remember right now. I don't, I don't know if he is. I don't know if he is. Okay. Well, here's, here's, here's what I'd do. If Francis Ngannou has an amazing performance, starches JDS, in my opinion, you give him the shot. You put him right up there with, uh, in the title uh, fight with Stephen Miocic. It's a fresh fight for Miocic. Francis Ngannou's got a ton of momentum. He's a bit of a fan favorite with uh, Dana White at the moment. He's out there in Las Vegas. He's moved out there now. So he's training in the Performance uh, Institute. Uh, pretty much daily, and then I think perhaps as a co-main event, you perhaps book an Overeem and Kane Velasquez or something like that. Uh, look, going by the rankings as they currently are, uh, Kane Velasquez is number two, Arthur Overeem is number three. I've got a feeling that'll change to one and two um, come this week's up, this week's update with the uh, Vadum losing. He's actually currently occupying that number one spot as we currently uh, speak, and um, yeah, that's the way I'd do it. Um, I agree. I don't think with a performance like that, you can justify, justifiably give a over him the title shot. Um, there needs to be something a bit more rubber stamped. And, and, and again, even if they uh, match him up with Kane, that'll be a fresh matchup. And it's a fight that we should have seen uh, quite some time ago. Um, but we haven't seen it so far. So I would love to see Overeem and Kane Velasquez um, get it on. And that could be a nice co-main event to a Miocic versus... Um, Versus Francis Ngannou, if he is to beat JDS. Yeah, I think I, I do think it's interesting to see what, what's going to happen here, just because the heavyweight picture is, is kind of muggy at the moment. It's kind of messy. Uh, and uh, because there isn't a clear number one contender. You know, you had Verdun was there, but hasn't really looked that convincing. Obviously, he's dropped a couple of fights now. Um, Overeem is there or thereabouts. Could have won the title fight, but made a bad error in the fight and ended up getting knocked out. Um, 
I think Nagano is the guy who I think if he gets past JDS, he gets the title fight. No question. I just checked out Cain Velasquez while you were uh, while you were talking to Sandu. Almost to the day, it's a year since he last fought. He fought. We're recording this on July the tenth, um, twenty seventeen, and Travis Brown was Cain Velasquez's last opponent, and that was on July the ninth, twenty sixteen, at UFC two hundred. He hasn't fought since, and he isn't booked to fight again yet. So that may well be the one to make. That well, they, that may well be the one to make. So we'll see. We'll see. I don't. I'm struggling to think of another viable option, really. Um, unless unless uh, Miocic is going to take a bit of a a bit of a breather, and then they can do Naganu versus um, Overeem if Naganu gets past JDS. We'll see. Because obviously Overeem's got a knockout win over JDS. If Naganu gets a knockout win over JDS, they're you know they're both in a position where they have got comparable uh, comparable uh, performance against a a, uh, a common opponent. So I don't know. I don't know. It's it's it's, it's a tricky one. But uh, what we do know is that Miocic stands head and shoulders clear at the top of that UFC heavyweight division. One person who isn't going to be challenging for the UFC title anytime soon is Mr. Travis Brown, who. Has had a remarkable fall from grace after being ranked as high as third, I think, in the UFC heavyweight division at one point, and was considered as someone who could potentially be a heavyweight champion in the future. Um, but he lost to Alexi Olinik, uh, and I called it on last week's show, Sandu. Mm-hmm. I called it on last week's show. If you fancy a bet, get Olenek by submission, and uh, and lo and behold, he won by submission, um, fought well. And uh, that's four losses on spin for Travis Brown. I think it's five out of six. And I think it might even be six out of his last eight. That's not great. And um, Dana White was asked about this in the uh, post-fight press conference. And he made no bones about what he thought should happen next. He said he thinks Travis Brown should retire. So uh, should he retire? Should he go off and fight for someone else? Um, What next for Travis Brown? Well, I personally don't think he can hang in the UFC anymore. That's for certain. Um, he, he's just not good enough, Simon. He's just not good enough right now. Can he? You know, is he athletic enough? Does he have the resources to get back to uh, the monster he was a few years ago? Yes. Um, again, outside looking in, I don't know uh, the details, but it, it seems to be that the turning point for this recent run of losses for him was when he went to Glendale Fight Club. You know um, that. That was just a uh, something that kind of coincided with this run. Uh, before that, he was with Wack, uh, Jackson Winklejohn, which is a fantastic uh, uh, gym team camp, one of the best in the world. And he was doing pretty well under them, Simon. Not bad at all. And he made a decision um, that I personally feel as though has impacted his career ever since. I think he needs to leave the UFC. Um, I don't know if he should retire. That's a personal choice for a, a fighter. It's not as if I suppose he's, you know, in his forties, like Fedor, uh, getting clipped and knocked out in the first round or anything. He's fairly competitive, but it's just he's losing fights. You know, he's 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 competing, but he's losing, and he's continuing to lose time and time again. I think he would be a perfect signing for a Bellator, um, uh, the number two promotion in the world right now. It keeps him. Uh, it, it would keep him if they were to sign him in the um, in the public limelight for North America, being on uh, being on Spike. I think it'd be a great addition to their heavyweight um, roster. 
you could always do him versus Matt Mitrione again. That's a, that's a nice little fight there, considering how the, the last fight went between the two in a controversial circumstances. And um, But yeah, no, I don't think he should retire, personally, but I don't think he's good enough to hang in the UFC anymore. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I thought it was interesting, and uh, it was actually something that our friend John Morgan brought up on his podcast, the MMA Roadshow. Is the fact that Dana is saying that he should retire, rather rather than, does, does that mean that he wants Travis to remove himself from the UFC by retiring, rather than have the UFC cut him, which then allows him to go and fight for Bellator? Now, Travis Brown going and fighting for Bellator, in and of itself, probably won't be a huge concern for the UFC, given Brown's form. But Travis Brown's about to marry Ronda Rousey. And even just the name value of having Ronda sat at cage side, uh, and just, just, just little things like that, you know, you can bet Bellator wouldn't mind, wouldn't mind giving Ronda Rousey a little bit of screen time uh, on their shows. It just helps build the, uh, the mystique around their own brand that this is where, you know, big stars are fighting, but there's big stars watching as well. So I don't know whether there's anything anything to be said in that. It was an interesting interesting thought um, when uh, that was mentioned. So we'll have to see what happens. But I tend to agree with you. I think the days of Travis Brown as a legitimate contender in the UFC heavyweight division are probably gone. And in the heavyweight division of any combat sport, the minute you start getting beat regularly, um, you have a major problem um, from a longevity point of view because you normally can't sort of manage your way through fights at heavyweight because you either get you either get smashed or you don't. So it'd be interesting to see where his next move is, whether it's retirement, whether it's uh, looking to get released so that he can then uh, go and fight for someone else. But we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. Uh, on Travis Brown, let's do some que- let's, let's do some questions, Sandy. Let's do some questions. Let's do it. So, thank you very everyone for uh, for tweeting your questions in. Um, as always, you can reach out to us at the Britpack MMA. Uh, that is the uh, the Twitter handle. And uh, you know, you don't have to wait until we put the call out. Uh, you can always do it um, throughout the week if you. Fight night, it's always a good one. You know, everyone's always active on social media. Come fight night, something controversial happens, you want to talk about it or actually get our opinion on it. Hit us up at the Brit Pack and we'll include it in the show on a Monday night. So, the first one uh, comes in from Stuart Tuckwell and he asks, Who would you give the next heavyweight title shot to? Overeem, Kane, or wait to see if Nganu beats Dos Santos at UFC? 215 well we've pretty much already covered that one simon um you know what my thoughts are on that but Stuart does follow up with the second question and he says who would you like to see gaethje fight next and i think any of the top eight ranked lightweights would all be good to see we kind of covered that a little bit earlier on as well simon um in terms of fantasy but being realistic i suppose who do you think the ufc will match up gaethje with next Edson Barbosa. I think that's the common sense, the common sense matchup. Um, if you want one out of left field, look out for Al Iaquinta. Mm. Um, Al Iaquinta, he wants fights. He wants to fight. Um, I think he's a bit frustrated with the UFC. I think that would be a, an absolute tear up um, between those two. Al can bang. Gaethje can bang. 
Um, if they don't, if 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 the uh, the pieces don't quite fit to give Gaethje a top five opponent yet, maybe Al Quinton might be a a good backup option. But the fight I'd like to see is uh, Gaethje versus Edson Barboza, and uh, I want to see it as a main event. I don't think we'll need five rounds, but just in case it goes past three, I think we'll feel cheated if that fight ever went to the scorecards. So give him give him the full five rounds. And uh, let's 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 see let's see what you can do against the most dangerous kicker in uh, probably in all of MMA, Edson Barboza. Well, he has just gone on the MMA Hour um, as we as we've been recording this episode, and he's gone on the record as saying he'd like to fight Tony Ferguson next. Now, in my personal opinion, I want the UFC to rebook Khabib versus Ferguson. That's just my my you know personal opinion, um, and I think I want to see Gate in one more high-profile fight before you start to put him in that lightweight title picture, whether it's interim or the legitimate one, right? Uh, but he has said if he can't get the Ferguson fight, he wants Alvarez or the winner of Alvarez slash Poirier if the UFC do rebook that fight. And he wants to return in November, which is interesting because we've already talked about uh, the possibility of an MSG card. And actually, speaking about the possibility of the MSG card, I know that uh, the Friday night before that particular week, Joe Rogan has actually got a, a venue booked for a stand-up uh, gig uh, in in New York. So, wow, uh, what do you know? <laughs> so uh, I can't remember who it was that flagged that up with me a few days ago, but somebody hit me up on Twitter just to kind of mention that, and I thought that was a, an interesting uh, booking for Joe Rogan considering he's based out there in California um so yeah so it looks like you know that'll get uh, announced officially pretty soon and yeah Gaethje wants in uh, on the MSG card it looks like uh well or a fight in November and yeah Alvarez would make sense or the winner of Alvarez Poirier makes sense your suggestion Simon would also make the world of sense as well the next question comes in from Andrew Matthews, who says, is Bisping versus Whitaker in Australia the biggest possible UFC pay-per-view ever that they could do outside of the Americas? In short, no, because Ronda Rousey fought in Australia um, a couple of years ago, and I think I'm pretty comfortable in saying that's that's going to be the biggest, or that has been uh, the biggest event pay-per-view-wise outside of America, both uh, in terms of uh, gate uh, attendance uh, and actual pay-per-view numbers as well. That I'm sure that did a, a million north. Now, you mentioned, Simon, that there is a, a date in Sydney in uh, in November, but it's a fight night. Now, yes. technically, the UFC could always pull an audible uh, like they did recently by moving uh, the event in Seattle or essentially uh, nixing it and then uh, pushing a pay-per-view into Edmonton. They can always do stuff like that, right? But I've got a feeling that they wouldn't want to do something like that and hold two pay-per-views in the same month of November when you've got a blockbuster one potentially being held in MSG in Madison Square Garden, right? So as much as I'd love to see something like that take place uh, in Australia, uh, we both know what it's like when you have uh, a champion hold a pay-per-view in his home country where we, you know, we're fortunate to see Michael do that, Michael Bisping at the back end of last year. Um, I've got a feeling that as a sweetener for Bisping to now fight Whitaker instead of fighting GSP, they're going to put him on that MSG card and they're going to go 
all guns blazing on that card. I'm sure it'll be a massive blockbuster event and a pay-per-view. And uh, that's the way I think they're going to go. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I tend to agree with that. And here's the thing. like The question, I think, was, is it the biggest possible pay-per-view that they could ever do outside of the Americas? The biggest pay-per-view that the UFC could ever do anywhere is putting Conor McGregor in a big arena somewhere in any part of the world. If Croke Park... And I know this is probably never going to happen because it would have done by now. If the UFC says, you know what, we're going to do this just because we can. We're going to go and do this. We're going to do Croke Park next summer. 80,000 people, 90,000 people. Um, that'll be the biggest pay-per-view outside the Americas because if Connor's on the card, everyone's watching it. And it doesn't matter what time of day it's on, people will be watching it. So um, I think that's... That's always going to be the biggest in reserve. If Ronda ever comes back, and there are rumblings that she might, um, just for one more against Misha Tate, maybe we might see that at Madison Square Garden later this year, or possibly, more likely, the 30th of December show. Um, don't, don't, uh, don't forget that. That might well happen. Tate v. Rousey 3. Uh, just to give them both a final send-off in a super fight and gives the UFC a huge fight to round off the year, irrespective of anything else that might be going on. Um, so, yeah, when Ronda fights, it's a, it's, it's, it's a massive deal. When Conor McGregor fights, it's an even bigger deal. So wherever they fight, if they put a pay-per-view on outside of the Americas with one or both of them, that's the biggest pay-per-view. Final question this week comes in uh, from... Talia Kicks, who says, how did yous get into MMA journalism? I've got a feeling this person's Scottish. Uh, and any advice for fellow upcoming MMA reporters slash journalists from the UK or Europe? So, so Simon, you and me both got um, a different path um, in many respects, I suppose. Um, I suppose I can kick off with, with this one, Simon, and, and you can go into it. Um, I had absolutely zero aspirations in getting into this field whatsoever. And like I mentioned at the start of the show, I'm still not doing this full time. I haven't done this full time whatsoever. I'm still holding down a full time job. I'm a freelance contributor to MMA Junkie. Uh, It fits well with with my schedule. Um, It doesn't really interfere too much with work. I can cover the European events. Um, You know, I've been privileged enough to cover a few big US blockbuster pay-per-views once in a while as well. Um, and, you know, I've just trying to, I've tried to do the best that I can, given the platforms that I've got at my disposal, that being social media, that being this podcast with my good friend Simon Head. Um, and my background is actually in film production, I had a, a film studies degree. And that's how I was initially able to find a bit of a niche within covering the sport. Now, you can cover the, uh, you know, anything, any subject, any topic area any industry in many different facets in 2017, social media, video, radio, audio, like a podcast, writing. Now, with all, within all of those um, bits and pieces, I suppose I would say where I excel at the most is on social media and video content. You know, I produce video content. That's how me and my good friend, Abby Saban, who is now, uh, you know, a salaried member of the MMA Junkie team, uh, the majority of the video content that you see on MMA Junkie has probably been chopped up by Abby. And me and him started a YouTube channel many, many years ago now. Um, I'd come up with the concepts and the ideas. Little did I know at the time, 
that I'd also have to double up as on-camera talent, which is something that I wasn't prepared for in getting into this field. And it's something that was actually a massive learning curve for me. I feel as though now I'm, I'm at the stage where I'm comfortable being on camera, interviewing fighters, doing the whole thing with the mic stick and what have you. Um, but that's not initially why I wanted to get into this. Uh, I wanted to find myself uh, in a situation where I could add value. And fortunately, both me and Abby working really hard together, producing some excellent video content on our YouTube channel, got snapped up by MMA Junkie. And it was John Morgan who initially gave us um, you know, the first opportunity by bringing us into the fold, introducing us to the team. And, and since then, we were able to do so many you know, great little projects. The one that comes to mind is um, the one that really puts on the map big time. And it was a, a profile piece on, at the time, the last woman to beat Ronda Rousey, a lady by the name of Edith Bosch, um, um, based out of the Netherlands. But, uh, but without getting into too much detail, here I am in 2017. Um, I'm covering the sport. Uh, any advice I'd give to journalists? I said, look, or aspiring journalists. I said, look, if you're maybe 16, 17, 18, and you're going to go to university, uh, and you can afford to go to university, I personally still think that uh, doing a degree is your best bet. Um, I've not been able to do that because I'm not going to spend another 30 grand or whatever it costs these days um, to do a degree at my age. Fortunately for me, I've had mentors like John Morgan. I've had friends like Simon Head who are well, well more experienced in this game and this field than I am. Um, and so in a way, my apprenticeship in covering this sport and, you know, and the people that I would have been able to lean upon for advice and guidance doing what I do are the best in the business. So I feel really comfortable in terms of how I've been able to kind of refine my tools, so to speak. But if you're at that age and you're a, a teenager wanting to get into this field or any field covering, um, you know, any top topic area or sport, what have you as a journalist, go and do a degree, um, get some good um, uh, three years of, uh, of educational experience under your belt, while at the same time trying to hustle and build up your social media profile when you've got the time available um, you know, at your hands. Try and do what nobody else is doing. Try and be unique in and, and, and whatever coverage that is, whether it's written or audio or video, social media. Um, and if you do that and you, and you stay the course, the opportunities will, will come your way. That, 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 I hope that I've been able to kind of answer the question as best as I can for my ability, Simon. But like I said, we've both had vastly different paths to to get to this point. So I'll guess I'll just turn it over to you so you can share your story. Yeah, I I'm a sports journalist. I've been I've been a sports journalist for 18 years. Um, I started out first journalist job I did. I, I, I worked for free for about three four years doing hospital radio and I was working on I worked on talk sport before it was actually on the radio it used to be on the internet uh, and I used to write the scripts for the weekend sports breakfast show very briefly I was there for a bit on what it was effectively like unpaid work experience um, and I ended up doing some uh, some other bits and pieces and then became a football journalist I was a football journalist for about 10-15 years working in the betting and gaming sector for a while and then when I moved across and got into uh, working for the Daily Mirror, I'd done a load of football stuff in the past, working for the FA and a few other places as well. Once I joined the Mirror, I kind of joined the Mirror doing a job I didn't want to do. Um, it was just a web producer job. And the plan was always 
get in the building and then sort of finagle my way back up into editorial. Managed to do that. And one of the ways I did it was uh, they used to have a load of blogs. Uh, one of the blogs was called Ringside and it was a WWE blog. <clears throat> but it also had a little bit, just a little bit of mixed martial arts coverage on it. It was just UFC back then. They didn't really worry about anything else. <clears throat> and um, I became very good friends with the guy who ran it. Um, and still am today. And uh, we decided from him doing the wrestling and me doing the MMA, as his time gradually started getting pulled away to do other projects, we'd flip the blog over. So it became an MMA blog first. And then when I became, I, I eventually got promoted to become uh, sport production editor. So I was in charge of running all of the sport that wasn't football online for the Mirror. And they were going through a, a site redesign. I managed to. Uh, petition to get MMA onto the main Mirror website. And we managed to get that done. So we then had managed to establish the Mirror's MMA coverage uh, on the main Mirror website rather than some little sideline. So very proud of that. We got that going. That became a huge traffic driver for the website. I then joined BT Sport just before they launched, um, working on the digital side for them, doing football, MotoGP, and uh, looking after their UFC coverage online. Then I joined The Sun, was their full-time MMA uh, journalist and reporter, which was, it was a great opportunity working full-time covering the sport that I love. And uh, unfortunately, they decided that they could could do it on the cheap. And uh, they they, they decided to make me redundant just before they needed to give me redundancy payoff. So uh, that was nice of them. And uh, I'm now freelance. But um, so I've been in the sort of journalistic sphere for about, 18 years now and uh that's it's it's, it's been great fun i've the, the last two years with the sun I, I managed to actually travel the world and see see events i never dreamt of you know I, my, my first ever event on, on, on american soil was ufc 189 mcgregor versus chad mendez uh international fight week absolutely bonkers event um and i've been at every mcgregor fight since then yeah every every mcgregor fight since then uh, I've been at, um, and uh, it's been it's been an amazing experience. It's been great fun, and uh, I'm now working freelance doing stuff for the BBC and a few other places, doing a few bits of BT Sport um, and and a few other places as well. So that's what I'm doing now. Um, but in terms of advice, um, the best thing to do is decide what you're good at, and do that. So if you're if you're a video editor and you like to shoot and edit video. Do that if you're if if you like writing, write. If you like talking, do podcasts. But just create your own, be your own outlet to start with. Build up all your social media profile, but basically be your own outlet to start with. And just it's all about getting reps, just repetitions all the time. Doesn't matter if the stuff you're putting out to start with isn't perfect. Just put stuff out, pow pow pow. Just keep doing it, refine it, change it, get feedback. Contact people in the industry who are in the positions that you want to be in. Ask for their advice. You'd be surprised how forthcoming a lot of guys are um, and are prepared to give you a little bit of guidance and advice and, 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 and all the rest of it. It's, it's, it's something that you're, I think will probably be very useful to you. Um, and do it for yourself first. And the other thing is, if you want to work in MMA journalism, don't just do MMA. That would be my other advice. If you're in the UK do other sport if you can be um if you can be someone who can cover a multitude of different sports that makes you more useful 
and might get you in the building somewhere or get you on a site somewhere or in a publication somewhere. And then once you're in, you can then start to sell the virtues of, of covering MMA as part of that. So if you're looking just at MMA, like the opportunities are absolutely ridiculously small. Um, I was the only full-time UK MMA journalist. Um, like Gareth Davis covers other sports. He's probably the you know the highest-profile British journalist, I would say. He's he's been covering boxing predominantly, and he's, he does MMA and he does disability sport and he does other stuff. He doesn't just do MMA. Um, for two years, I was very fortunate enough to do just MMA, and it was great. But since I since that job. Uh, since I was made redundant from that job uh, in January this year, there is no safety net. There's nowhere else to go. So there wasn't another role I could just jump into. No other publication in the UK were like, yes, we're going to cover this now. We're, so, we'll, you know, the way they do it, it doesn't work like that. So the best thing is be versatile. Be able to do lots of different things. Uh, and that goes with disciplines as well. Te- if you don't know how to edit video and audio yet, work on practicing. Teach yourself. And then become a sort of a triple threat. If you can do video, audio, written, and you can write about more than one sport and become an authority on more than one sport, then you're a value to someone. Um, Other than that, just reps. Get reps, ask questions, and don't expect things to happen quick because they really don't. Um, And uh, do it because you love it. And then if you end up in a job where you love what you're doing, then you've made it, irrespective of what what meagre salary you might get paid because journalism doesn't pay very much. So if you can get, if you can do it for the love of it, then great. And the other thing, cause I'm getting, I'm going on a bit now. The other thing is cover, the, cover your local shows because you won't get credentialed for a UFC or a Bellator show if you're just starting out, but your local MMA show will probably be more than happy to have you. And it's those shows where you can really build yourself up. Look at severe MMA. They're a great example of this. They started out in Ireland and they were covering a lot of the Irish scene. Uh, so they became very well known among the Irish camps over there. Team Rhino, um, SBG. And what happened? Their fighters started to take off. SBG had that crop of fighters. Conor McGregor, Carl Pendred, Paddy Houlihan. They all, they all sort of rose up together and ended up in the UFC. And severe MMA, as a result of that, they really grew as a result as well. And some of the guys who are doing stuff for them, their, their, their profile's gone up and they've done really well as a result as well. So if you can get relationships with people on the way up, when, then when they get to the top, assuming that they're decent guys, they'll remember you when they see you. So, uh, so that's the other thing as well. And that, that also gives you live event experience, albeit at a lower level, so that when you do build things up or you're in a position to get on a credentialed show that's much bigger, you're not completely alien to it and you know you know how it all works but yeah i hope that makes some sort of sense sandor i started rambling towards the end there but uh but yeah i hope i hope that's useful info and that was the the final question short and sweet this week but i hope uh people found especially that last question uh valuable and you're right simon i've been hit up on email plenty of times i'm sure you have too um from you know younger aspiring reporters um asking for advice and i'm always happy to take five, ten minutes out, hit, you know, hit a reply and, and hopefully uh, give them some advice that's going to help them in the long term. Absolutely. I mean, my, my Twitter DMs are open. So if anyone wants to DM me any questions, please feel free to do so and I'll always try and get back to you. 
Um, might not be instant, but I will always try and get back to you. Because, um, um, you know, as as the, the phrase goes, uh, was it a rising tide lifts all ships? And it's Andu, that's how it works. Everyone, that's right. You know, there are some people who will like to, you know, they like to plough their own furrow and sort of screw people over. That's not That's not really how either the pair of us see things. We, uh, we, we, we tend to look at things slightly differently. So uh, anyone needs any, any advice, feel free to hit me up on, on DM on Twitter at Simon Head uh, with any questions and I'll do my best to give you some sort of useful, useful answer. And if I can't, I'll tell you I can't. So it's all, it's all good. Don't ask me for any cooking tips, for example, because I'm terrible. Right. Final, final part of the show. This was going to be a short show, but yet again, it's gone on a bit. Uh, it's, it's gone on a bit. I'll blame Gagod Massessi. Uh, UFC Glasgow takes place this Saturday, Sunday night. It's a Sunday night show. Um, good luck on Monday morning, everybody. Um, it's a Sunday night show at the SSE Hydro, one of my favourite venues uh, in Europe. Amazing venue. The UFC are back, back, back in Scotland for UFC Fight Night One Thirteen. Gunnar Nelson against Santiago Ponzinibbio. Um, it is a fight card catered very much to UFC Fight Pass uh, or, or Fox Sports, and it's catered very much to the local market. So we're not blessed with an enormous amount of A-list stars, but if you're a fan of domestic level MMA and have seen some of our fighters rise up through the ranks to reach the UFC, then there will be some names on here that you'll be happy to watch. Brett Johns is in action on the fight past prelims. Undefeated bantamweight former Cage Warriors world champion. He's in action. We've got Danny Roberts, who had that absolute war with uh, Mike Perry in... Uh, in was, it, was it Manchester? It was Manchester last year, wasn't it? Unbelievable fight that was. He's back in action on the televised prelims. And then on the main card, we've got Paul Craig in action on home soil against Khalil Roundtree. Jack Marshman, who is never in a bad fight against Ryan James. That's a sleeper fight of the night, by the way. Stevie Ray, Paul Felder is the odds-on for fight of the night. Joe Calderwood versus Cynthia Calvillo, and then Nelson versus Ponzinibbio. Sandu, give me your top three. What 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 three fights are you most intrigued, excited, uh, eager to take in next Sunday? You're going to be up there covering fight week for MMA Junkie. Um, who, who are the people you're most looking forward to talking to, and which fights are you most looking forward to seeing live? Uh, well, starting from the bottom up, uh, maybe maybe a little bit different to you, uh, Simon. But uh, Danny Roberts. Now we were both cage side uh, for his last outing uh, in Manchester, and it was a war um, against Mike Perry. Mike Perry, um, man, he put a beating on Danny Roberts, and it's been what around eight months since that fight last October, and I'm just interested to see, you know. How, how he rebounds, because that was a beating that he took from Mike Perry. And, um, you know, it, yeah, it was, one, it was one of those ones where we were both really kind of like egging the referee to jump in and stop it, because you could see that Roberts was out on his feet uh, for the latter part of that third round and probably took a little bit more punishment um, than he should have, really. Uh, but that just shows what a true warrior he really is to, you know, to keep on his feet and to you know, try and... Um, you know, survive. Um, but yeah, so anyway, back to the point. Uh, I'm really kind of curious to see um, what he's done since then to improve his game um, and, and and how he rebounds against Bobby Nash. Super, super excited to see Joanne Caldwell versus Cynthia Calvalla. 
Calvillo, sorry. I think everyone kind of universally recognizes Cynthia Calvillo as the unofficial DR sister. Uh, she's just got that spunk and attitude and personality about her. Um, you know, ever since she made um, her debut for the UFC against Amanda Cooper uh, in March and then followed that up uh, with another great win against Pearl Gonzalez. Um, you know, she's relatively, it's relatively early for her in her pro career. She's a 5-0 fighter, um, but she's already showing both the fans, the media, and more importantly, Dana White, um, that she's got the right attitude and she's got an amazing fighting style. And I think she's going to be a threat in the long term in that women's strawweight division. Now, interestingly enough for Joanne Calderwood, this will probably be the last time we see her fight at this weight class because the UFC is introducing the flyweight division. And unfortunately for her, they had just booked this fight. Literally, I think it was a couple of days or maybe a week or two tops yeah. until they kind of announced that the UFC flyweight division was coming around the corner. So it'll be interesting to kind of you know, speak to her, get her take on things. Um, and then, of course, you know, you've got Stevie Ray versus Paul Felder. I think that's going to be a barn burner of a fight. You know, uh, you know we've spent some time with Paul Felder uh, here on the European circuit. You know, and uh, you got Stevie Ray coming off two important wins for him uh, against Ross Pearson and Joe Lazon back to back, and uh, I think this is going to be a good test for him against Paul Felder. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I could be wrong here because I'll need to double check this. But having a look at some of his interviews on social media, uh, I think Stevie Ray is playing out his contract um, with this Paul Felder fight, or, or is very close to um, ending his current UFC contract to see if he can get a better deal. So that'll add the stakes. I want to, I want to, you know, question about that actually because I'm pretty sure I've seen that recently um, in uh, in some of his social media posts. Um, obviously, I haven't mentioned main event, and it kind of goes back to some of the points you were making at the start of the segment, Simon. Where here in Europe, we're starting to see perhaps not your super A-list fighters be put into a position. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I like the fight, you know. Gunnar Nelson, Santiago Ponzabino. Would I like to see Nelson perhaps fight somebody um, in and around where he's ranked or maybe just ahead of him? Yes. But he's the one that's decided to to accept this fight. It's close to home. It's a short flight over for him to Glasgow. Um, I'm sure he's the betting favourite. I expect him to win uh, quite comfortably, in my opinion. Um, but it, it, it was a bit of a strange choice, so to speak, to put, you know, Nelson and Ponzi being in a main event of a Glasgow show where you know the Scottish fans are going to come out in droves and be super, super passionate. I think that fan base and that market deserved something a little bit more marquee value, in my opinion. Yeah, I think I, 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 can, I can agree with that. I think Ponzi Nibio is one of those fighters who he's good. He, he's really good. I mean, he's an all action fighter. He's exciting to watch. He comes forward. I think he's tailor-made for Gunnar Nelson, though. I think he's absolutely tailor-made for Gunnar Nelson. And I think the way the timing of this works, if Gunnar Nelson gets through this one unscathed, then that means he should be nicely set for Madison Square Garden in November. Because you can bet if Conor McGregor is going to come back on that card, then you would think that Gunnar Nelson might well be on there with him. Um, So that's another thing to bear in mind as well. Um, Fights I'm most looking forward to, uh, other than the ones you mentioned, Jack Marshman, Ryan James. Ryan James is sort of a a big, solid, come-forward sort of fighter. Jack Marshman loves nothing better than to just walk forward and exchange punches. I think that will be a good fun fight. 
Um, I wouldn't expect too many submission attempts in that fight. I think you would, you watch it finish by submission. Now I've said that, but I think uh, I think that could that that one could degenerate into a slugfest pretty quickly. Um, we've got James Melhuron, uh making his UFC debut against Justin Willis. That's one to look out for. British heavyweight um, Danny Roberts. I'm I'm interested to see how Danny Roberts goes. Neil Siri is in action, and we haven't mentioned Neil Siri. This should be his retirement fight. He's fighting Alexandra Pantoja, uh, who I know very, very little about. But um, I do know a lot about Neil Siri. And, uh, you know, as someone who's, who's covered a few of his fights, and, you know, we've both been there and watched some of his fights. We were both there in Belfast when his fight with Ian McCall fell through uh, on Wayne Day. Uh, he was absolutely crestfallen. So um, hopefully nothing happens in the lead-up to that fight, and he gets to uh, get in the octagon and go out on his own terms on fight night. Um, Danny Henry, Scottish uh, prospect, who is a EFC champion down in South Africa. He's joined the UFC and he's taking on Daniel Tamer, brother of uh, David Tamer. And from the reports I've heard, he's even more of a nutcase than David Tamer. So I can't see that being anything other than entertaining as well. Uh, And Brett Johns, I enjoy watching Brett Johns as well. And finally... First fight in the night, Leslie Smith. Uh, there are a few people in uh, in in the active roster of the UFC who are more vocal in uh, campaigning for improved fighter rights than uh, than Leslie Smith. Uh, and she also happens to be an absolute warrior when she gets in the cage as well. So she's first fight on against Amanda Lemos. So there's some good good in, interesting fights on that card. Um, Perhaps I haven't got the stardust there. Could have done with just a little bit of sprinkling of stardust on the top of the card. But I think we'll see some good fights on Sunday night. That'll be live on BT Sport and it'll be live at a sensible time. Which, given it's on a Sunday night, is probably for the best. Uh, you can imagine a few sore heads uh, north of the border going into work on Monday morning. But that's UFC Glasgow. Uh, and that all pretty much wraps us up. The only other thing to mention, of course, Sandu, is we've got certain Mayweather versus McGregor press conference taking place. This Friday, SSC Arena at Wembley. Tickets, if you listen to this, if you're one of the early adopters of this show, people who want to tune in or or get the show as early as possible after we release it, you might just have enough time to get your tickets. They go on sale, say sale. They're available to get online um, via the SSC Arena website. Tuesday, midday. Make sure you get them quick because they will go very, very quickly. Sandy, you're going to be there. What are your what are your um, what are your thoughts, and what are your what are you expecting? Dana White's already said it's going to be a shit show. What do you think is going to be? <laughs> well, I hope we're, I hope I'm going to be there. I hope we're both going to be there. I think we're both expecting approvals of our media credential applications to come through in the next 24 hours or so, um, as of this recording. But yeah, I'd like to think that we'll both get our credentials approved. It's always a bit of a new system because we're kind of technically applying through. Showtime boxing and, to- and Showtime sports, who we don't really have a, a long-standing reputation or rapport with, but they are partnering with the UFC, and, and hopefully the UFC PR team know who the, who, the, who the folks are based in London from the MMA side of things uh, that they'd want to have there to cover the event. But yeah, so hopefully it will be there. Um, I don't know what to expect. I guess I'm ex- going to expect what we normally get out of a Conor McGregor press conference, which is lots of good quotes. Lots of entertainment, lots of fun, 
Um, this whole week will be interesting to follow, actually, both from LA to, to, to Toronto and New York, and then obviously the final pit stop. Save the best to last, Simon. That's what I would say. Uh, save the best to last with the London show on, on Friday. And they're calling it a show. If you, if, you know, when I got the, uh, the press release, they kind of said, uh, you know, the doors open at 5 p.m. at the SSC Arena in Wembley, and then the show starts at 7 o'clock, which is interesting. Uh, so see, we'll see what's available. Actually, as we're, as we're speaking, it looks like um, our good friend Ariel Holwani of MMAfighting.com, he's going to be hosting um, alongside Brendan Schaub and Paul Malignaghi. Um, and they're going to serve as analysts for uh, LA, New York, and Toronto, which is a, an interesting move uh, by Showtime to get them on board. Uh, Mauro Ranallo will also be in LA uh, as, as a host. So that'll be interesting. So, I mean, if that's LA, New York, and Toronto, interesting to see. Who are we going to get then? Who are we going to get? <laughs> I mean, we... I, I certainly haven't had the call, Simon. I don't know about you. No. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, interesting. And I, again, I think these are the bits and pieces that will add the bells and whistles to the fans. I mean, it's for free. You're going to want to get everyone's hot take on you know, what will transpire. Uh, I'm looking forward to the atmosphere. This is the one opportunity that I think a lot of the Irish will, you know, get obviously you know it's a bit of a bummer that dublin didn't get on the list uh as a host city for this world tour so i'm expecting lots of irish to fly down to london for the day they'll probably make a weekend out of it and probably stay for the weekend it's nice weather at the moment it's summertime here in london um you can have tons of irish that are based here in london that are going to want to see it but you're going to have just hardcore fans but you know what i'm looking forward to most simon it's going to be the the mixture of boxing media, MMA media, boxing fans and MMA fans. And this is, this is going to give us one opportunity, maybe, you know, in some respects, the only opportunity to see how we all get along or maybe we don't get along at all. Who knows? Um, so, yeah, it, it'll be a lot of firsts. And, uh, and, and I can't wait to kind of look back and reflect on it on, uh, on next week's show. I think, the, I think the key word here is the dynamic. And, and wherever you turn and wherever you look, whether you look in the crowd, whether you look within the press press section, uh, when you look on the stage, the dynamic, the clash of cultures, the clash of personalities is going to be fascinating to see. The thing for me is going to be how Floyd Mayweather reacts to Conor McGregor as the press dates go along. And I just hope that Floyd doesn't bail before the end of the press tour so that the London event actually does go ahead. Because if Connor's completely peed him off, by the time they've left Toronto, or sorry, by the time they've left Brooklyn, Floyd might say, you know what, I'm, 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 binning, off, I'm binning off the transatlantic flight, I'm going back to Vegas. So let's hope that doesn't happen. But we saw what McGregor did to Jose Aldo over the course of a, a, a global press tour. He mentally messed the guy up. Um, and um, I'm really looking forward to seeing just what kind of verbal ammunition McGregor's going to come with. Because let's be honest, look at Floyd Mayweather's past. He's got some previous. And if Connor wants to go down that route, then it could get a little bit nasty. So, uh, you know, Mayweather's got a slightly murky past, some of the things that he's, uh, he's, been, uh, he's been prosecuted for. Um, so we will see what comes of that, if anything. Um, I, I almost wonder whether McGregor has had to sign some sort of uh, non-disparaging statement, you know, some sort of, you know, something in the contract that says he isn't going to go down that route, the whole domestic violence uh, route and stuff like that, because uh, 
there's not there's not really anywhere that Floyd can go if Connor starts starts bringing that up in the middle of a huge crowd of fans, especially if he starts doing it in London. Because Floyd is a big, big boxing star. He's got a great record. But as a human being, he isn't the most popular guy in the world for some of the stuff he's done. So, and the one thing with Connor, he might be brash. He might be, uh, you know, a little bit gobby at times. But outside of fighting, you know, there doesn't really seem to be a hell of a lot that you can really stick on him. So, I'm really looking forward to seeing just what McGregor's going to come up with. Because him just walking around saying, I'm going to shock the world, isn't going to work over four press conference events. And you know that he's preparing stuff. You know that he's got stuff ready, and we know that when he sits down, he's gonna have, he's gonna he's gonna know what he's gonna come with. And the and the thing I'm gonna be really fascinated to see is how Mayweather reacts to it. I think his dad is gonna play a big role in these press conferences. Uh, Floyd Senior will be the one. He'll be the one mouthing off. It won't be Floyd because that's not really Floyd's style. Floyd. All Floyd does is tells you how rich he is and tells you how many fights he's won. That's pretty much it. Uh, Floyd Senior, he'll be the one with the trash talk. So that I think is where the real the real clash will happen, and I can't wait to see it. I have no idea whether we're going to get any of it on TV over here, or if is any of it going to be live streamed. I don't know. Hopefully, um, but um, yeah, it's going to be good fun to watch. And as I said, uh, I went on Talksport a couple of weeks ago, and I said the press conferences should be pay per view, and the fight should be free. Because the press conferences, I think, are going to be... Uh, they'll be longer, more drawn out, and there'll be more entertainment in those press conferences, potentially, than the actual fight, which could become a bit of a damp squib. But we will see. It's going to be good fun to find out. So, uh, yeah, May Mac, the press tour starts this week. By the time you listen to this, they'll probably be setting themselves up in Los Angeles for the first one. That, I think, wraps us up, Sandu. It does. A, a pack packed show this week um, but there's not really anything that we could have skipped and put by the wayside it was just one of them weekends or one of them weeks so uh, apologies for the legs but I hope you guys all enjoyed the show yeah breaking news during the pod that's a bit of a rarity as well Gagod Massassi joining Bellator on the main good get by Scott Coker um, that pretty much wraps us up then so let's do all the family business and get the hell out of here you can follow Sandu at Sandu MMA you can follow me at Simon Head you can follow the show at the Brit Pack MMA the website is thebrickpackmma.com. We're on SoundCloud, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on Stitcher, and we're also on Acast. I'm investigating a few other bits and pieces as well, so we may, we may be available on one or two other platforms further down the line in the future. Stay tuned for news on that. Other than that, all that, all that remains is to say thank you so much for listening to the show. That was episode number 46. Enjoy the fights, whether you're going to Glasgow or whether you're watching it. TV. We'll speak to you next time.